Hey kids and parents, are you looking for a summer STEM camp to keep your middle to high school student engaged? Or are you looking for an after school STEM oriented group that actually does real aerospace throughout the year? Well, look no further than the Aerospace and Innovation Academy, our parent organization. For our South Florida listeners, there are three distinctive summer sessions that will be offered in late July. For those math lovers out there, learn orbital mechanics and understand the math behind how those rockets get into orbit. For those competitive science individuals, getting a head start in that science fair means starting now. Both these camps are half-day sessions and are taught by our very own aerospace instructor and renowned science fair consultant, Kevin Simmons. For a cross-curricular experience, choose the week-long ACES camp, which stands for Aerospace CubeSats and Exploration of Science, where students will receive a space mission, work on teams to solve a problem, and pitch a solution in an oral component. Here, all those math, science, reading, writing, and speaking skills will be employed. Registration is open now by emailing interest to the email found in the show notes, or you'll find a registration form there as well. Now, not local, that's okay. A new cohort of online space club will start back up in September, along with new opportunities in the Wolfpack CubeSat development team. Check out our website at www.aerospacehigh.org. That's A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C-E-H-I-G-H dot O-R-G for more information. Registration will open soon for those as well. Join us and let's go to space. Let's Go to Space, Blue Sky Learning, Episode 119, A Sikorsky Woman in STEM. Kevin and I look forward to talking once again with great role model in aerospace, Rachel Garza. After receiving her degree in aerospace engineering from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, Rachel started her engineering career at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, where she worked as an astronaut instructor for the International Space Station program and served as a flight controller in the Mission Control Center. After nine years in that role, she left Texas to work as a systems engineer at GE Aviation in her home state of Michigan. She spent a year in that role before being hired into her dream job at Sikorsky Aircraft, working as a helicopter flight test engineer. Rachel is now a propulsion flight test engineering manager with Sikorsky, a Lockheed Martin company in West Palm Beach, Florida. She leads the team who's responsible for all aspects of propulsion system flight testing conducted on helicopters designed by Sikorsky Aircraft. We look forward to catching up with her and we hope that you'll stay tuned after for our takeaways. Welcome, Rachel Garza. It's so great to finally see you again. I think I was um, suggesting earlier that when we last saw you, it was pre-COVID, and uh, so it's been a, a couple of years. So for our, our audience members, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be involved in space. Yeah, so thank you for having me. It's great to see you both as well, and I think you're right. It was, uh, it was pre-COVID, um, so I'm happy to chat with you again. Uh, so um, my name's Rachel Garza. I am currently a, um, a flight test engineering manager at uh, Sikorsky, which is a Lockheed Martin company in West Palm Beach. Um, my story goes back to the beginning, as many people's stories do. Uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in Michigan. 
um, I was very interested in aircraft. So that was my very specific interest. I used to have little flashcards with the different aircraft on them and I would study the facts and just on my own time, it's what I enjoyed doing. I was also very into music. Uh, so I had kind of two parallel paths when I was in school. Uh, and when it came time to decide on the path, you know, to take into a career, um, I went with the math science path. I really liked physics. Uh, and I remember sitting down with my dad um, and he asked, you know, what, what do you see yourself doing? What do you like to do? That was a big thing, uh, what you like to do um, and what can be a career for you. So I went the, uh, the uh, STEM path, uh, although I don't believe we referred to it as STEM back in the olden days when I did it. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, I had originally wanted to be a helicopter pilot in the army. Um, but when I talked with the recruiter, um, it turns out I was too short. So that wasn't going to pan out for me. Um, so I went the engineering route. Uh, at that time, uh, Ember-Riddle Aeronautical University was a very good aerospace school. Um, and it was also 1,200 miles away from my home, which was a downside for me. I was a homebody. I enjoyed being with my family. Um, but I decided to kind of take a leap and uh, go to Ember-Riddle, where I studied aerospace engineering. Um, while I was there, I had the traditional college experience. I, you know, took all the, the, you know, good engineering courses, took a few of the additional courses they had, though it's an aerospace school, so they don't have a lot. Um, I think they have more now. And then when it came time to graduate, I didn't necessarily have a job lined up right away. Um, I had met with uh, some Sikorsky recruiters at a career fair and decided that's where I wanted to work. I wanted to do flight tests for propulsion uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida. And so I applied there and did not hear anything back. Uh, so I kind of broadly applied uh, elsewhere. And after a few months, I got a call back from um, some folks at the Johnson Space Center um, to go work uh, training astronauts. And so it was, you know, a job, a job offer. It was not necessarily in the area I wanted to be, but it sounded very cool. Uh, so I moved out to uh, to Texas and started my career in, uh, in space. Uh, so that's how I got into it, a little bit accidentally, but it was a happy accident. No, it sounds like, it's fascinating to think like, first of all, I remember being, you know, I'm trying to remember what I myself was fascinated with as a child. And it certainly wasn't helicopters. My daughter, I think it was dinosaurs, right? But there is, but for you to be, I, I did remember studying snakes. I know that sounds weird, but I had a book <laughs> kind of like, that's what it reminded me of where I was going with this. I had a book about dogs and all the dog breeds with a stamp collection and snakes. So this book, I just like spent the whole summer and I could tell you every fact about snakes and dogs. And yet, of course, no, that did not turn into a career field for me. I love how you started with that. You, oh, I can't be a helicopter flight person, but I'm going to find something in there. That's pretty um, fascinating. Quick question. When I was a kid, I'm much older than you are, but when I was a kid, we built model airplanes. We built models from our favorite, whatever we love the most. And did you build uh, either model airplanes or helicopters or did you fly RC aircraft? Did you do either of those? So I 
I built one model aircraft. It was a very special thing. Um, I did. I did not grow up with a whole lot of of money, um, and so what I would do, what I would build, is um, you know stuff with materials that we had in the house. Yeah. I distinctly remember my first engineering project was a pair of nunchucks because I wanted some nunchucks. Um, <laughs> And I took an old broom that uh, that my mom was not using anymore and, you know, cut it and I had some rope and I made myself some sweet nunchucks um, out of that broom. So that those were the projects that I did with things that I could find around the house and turn into uh, something I thought was cool. That's the best. <laughs> so actually. you were like a junior MacGyver. <laughs> that's, we'll very, go with that. Yes, that's very cool. Um, so I she might be too young to know that right? I know who MacGyver is. Okay, I know. I like, most most engineers give me a toothpick and a rubber band. And I'm like our kids yeah. nowadays are like, oh, you so, know, um, <laughs> how old we are. So I, you know, for our listeners, we had the privilege. Uh, Rachel spoke um, one time at lunch to a group of students. So I I know how uh, just tremendous it is. Perhaps you could share a little bit with our listeners about what's it like in the day in the life of you know, a test engineer, a flight test engineer, so that they could get an idea. Maybe that's a path they want to go down to. You specifically said propulsion, right? Propulsion flight test engineer. Tell us a little bit about what it's like uh, in your in your work at Sikorsky. So the great thing about the life as a flight test engineer, at least I think it's a great thing, is that it is never a dull moment. Um, we do not do the same thing every day. Uh, and you can go in to work uh, and get a little bit of you know, unexpected uh, happen in, during your day. Um, usually it's good unexpected. So Essentially, uh, flight test engineers come in near the end of a program when you want to, you know, qualify an aircraft. It's been designed, it's been uh, built, it's been possibly redesigned and rebuilt, uh, and then it comes to test uh, where we have to, you know, validate the requirements to get it fully qualified to go out to whatever customer it is we're, you know, delivering it to. So we're at the end. So we've already blown past many schedules and budgets by the time we get to a flight test. Uh, so essentially we take our requirements and we plan a test um, to show that the helicopter in this case can meet those requirements. So within propulsion, we're in charge of all of the like engine integration on, on the aircraft. So we take these requirements, turn it into a plan, and then we take that plan and you know make it more detailed turn it into maneuver by maneuver what we need the pilots to execute during the test in order to satisfy these requirements um, so that's the planning and preparation phase uh, and then we get to test execution uh, where we will monitor the aircraft from a telemetry uh, station on the ground usually sometimes it's in the back of the aircraft if we're off-site and we don't have ground station so we monitor data from the aircraft uh, in real time to make sure things are going as planned, to make sure we're getting the data we need, and to make sure we don't have to do any you know, repeat testing, and ultimately to make sure that everything is happening safely or as safely mm -hmm. as possible when you're executing a flight test program. Right. So now, now you, you make the plan. Let's talk about the criteria for success, right? 
is it at your level or would you say maybe a manager or someone higher up in Sikorsky, do they determine what is sort of the go, no go, or if a test is successful, who determines when you're doing it well versus we've got more work to do? That's another great part about being a flight test engineer, specifically at Sikorsky, uh, is we are very familiar with the data, with the aircraft. And in addition to planning and executing the test, we do the data analysis or so familiar with what needs to be accomplished in order to, um, you know, call it a success. So I would say it's a combination of, of folks in that chain, depending on how things are going. But ultimately, those who own the data, the flight test engineers and are most familiar with the data are the ones who say, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. We need a repeat. We don't need a repeat or, hey, we don't think we're compliant to this requirement. I think I remember when we were visiting being in a room and like the kids were all sitting at these kind of computer modules. So they're basically sims that you're running um, that would kind of like see whether or not the parts would work. Is that correct? Was it kind of like- It's so not that, a was it, It's, it's not a real time. It's a console. It's real time, real time. I feel yeah. like what, with the kids, when they were there, were they watching a real time one that was happening? That was they were watching a simulation. So that was a yeah. playback of an early test. Um, so they could, you know, see the data as it was happening. Um, it. But it looks the same when it's in real time, right? We're pumping right, right. the data down to the room, we're monitoring, we're communicating with the pilots and the aircraft, just to make sure um, everything's going well. Yeah, and I think I remember there were so many, like there were different roles in the room where people were collecting certain kinds of data and looking at certain things. But I would imagine, so like by, that's what you mean when you're saying that they're looking at all the, that data that's coming in in real time before they decide, then they'll go and actually they're testing it as it's going, they're seeing it come in. So whether it needs to be done again, how many times does, um, let's say do they have to do, well, what's the average time to redo or does it get done automatically or does it like two or three? What is the average time for retests? It, it actually does not happen often because uh, experimental test pilots are incredibly qualified pilots for conducting these and they are the experts on the aircraft they're the experts on how to fly the aircraft um, they have a lot of input into the planning process so very rarely do we need to repeat uh, due to the maneuver not being flown correctly now sometimes we might have data outages we might have um, unexpected weather we might have unexpected aircraft in the in the area so some of those things would uh, right. necessitate a redo yeah. but um, monitoring in real time is very it's very similar to you know my first job uh, where I would monitor data in real time in the mission control center. So there, it was very similar to that, a little bit more fast paced. Um, it's like a, a big team test. essentially then of different kinds of yes. folks bringing together that final go ahead. So, right. yes. so my question is, I imagine two scenarios. One, you have a brand new vehicle that doesn't really have customers that you're trying to validate or get it ready to go to the first customer or you bring in an existing, let's say production vehicle and you modify it or put in a new engine or something like that. Does your work lie in one area or another of those two scenarios? Both, we do it all. It, it doesn't matter if it's brand new, like some of our you know, prototype uh, development aircraft or if it is you know, the one of the many iterations of the Blackhawk, that machine has been around for oh, decades. I love that. 
I wow. love riding in the Blackhawks. You know what that meant? We didn't have to walk wherever we were going. So uh, that was fun about the Blackhawks. Plus, you got to sit sideways. Um, so uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it is a helicopter question. How fond are you of the Airwolf TV series? <laughs> now, Airwolf. So I will admit, growing up, when it was growing up when Airwolf was on, um, I was not really allowed to watch much TV. So I, mm. if you ask me about, you know, pop cultural references or any references in the time period where I grew up, and I won't necessarily say what decade that was, um, there's a bit of a blank spot. So, uh, yeah. So I would Wolf, have been, I would have been familiar and yes. entertained had um, I been allowed to watch. So <laughs> Airwolf was, it was, it was terrible, but it was a supersonic <laughs> helicopter. Uh, it was a really, it was fun. Well, I want to actually talk about when you were growing up. And so you had this interest early on. Did you see a lot of other women as role models who were doing the kinds of things that you wanted to do or that you saw yourself doing? So I did not, um, but I will say I did not, I, I was not in an area where I could really look around and see a lot of, you know, different careers, people doing the different careers. So I didn't have um, role models. I also didn't have a general awareness that, oh, I, I'm a woman, I'm not supposed to be an engineer. So ah. I to do, so it's what I did. When I arrived at school, and looked around, it, it became obvious that it was not necessarily a, you know, you know, female dominant industry, but um, it still uh, did not deter me really in any way. What, was your dad a good influence on you? You spoke of him having conversations with you about your career. Was he, a, 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 did he help guide you in the, a way that turned out to be exactly where you needed to be? My dad was a good guy. My both of my parents were supportive parents, but not like I was never really told what I should do. I was asked what I wanted to do and how I wanted to, you know, go about achieving those goals. So it was it wasn't I wouldn't call it hands off, but it was very much, you know, kind of guiding through questioning and then just general support i never felt freedom, unsupported yeah. freedom yeah. to kind of are, are your kids um are your kids old enough now that when you speak to them you hear your parents maybe and some of what you say to your own kids? little bit yes, yes. yes. i know you're you catch yourself one day and you go holy crap i sound like my dad i don't yes. know if that's good or bad yes. no yes. i think it's well, obviously, the reason I bring that up is that's one of the areas uh, that I'm interested in. And I mean, I was one of those kids who probably was not easily, um, I wouldn't say that it was automatically my lane. I loved science. Math was much more difficult for me. But I think that I didn't have anyone kind of saying these are possible jobs for you. Like nobody was saying you couldn't do them, but I didn't really even know what half these engineering jobs were I assumed aerospace engineering meant astronaut right like I had no idea mm -hmm. that all these other jobs existed in there and I think that that's true for a lot of underrepresented populations and it's not just women but I think particularly like poor family you know poor children who come from areas like I, I also grew up with not a lot so I didn't have the same exposure 
I think to some of the class offerings, because I was in a very rural school. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really have a lot of options. So I think about students like that. And as I, I when I first met you, you were, we were doing, we talked about the girls in STEM kind of thing. Tell me a little bit about what you did with that in the past and, and, and maybe why that's so necessary for our listeners. So one of my mottos is that um, I may be the first, but I will make sure that I'm not the only for long. So if at all possible in any area, if I can bring along others and teach others that they can, you know, do this career, whatever it is, I, I will do that. So one of the great parts about working at um, a corporation like Lockheed Martin is that there are many initiatives to um, get kids interested in the STEM fields. Um, and there is a focus on getting underrepresented populations interested in the STEM fields. So a big part of the work I've done in the past with some of our, our um, employee resource groups at the various companies I've been at is to uh, in, keep girls interested in STEM because often they are interested early on in their school careers. And so it's not a matter of exposing them to STEM, it's keeping them interested and allowing them to see that they have a path. It doesn't have to be a prescribed path. Uh, one of my favorite parts about some of the events we've done with the girls is each of the engineers would tell their story um, and it's all a different path. They wind up in similar places, but they do it in a very different way. So I think that helps uh, kids hearing that there are many ways mm -hmm. to go about their career. I think it's important because anytime you have uh, folks with diverse backgrounds in a space that's supposed to be innovative, you'll do a lot better. You have, you have to have all of the ideas and many times ideas are generated from your experiences as a human. So if you have different experiences based on who you are or your background or where you're from, uh, that's all helpful for innovation. No, I think too. And, and I think it's that the same thing about going back to exposure too. So it's helpful for everybody on that team ultimately to have those diverse perspectives from those backgrounds. And you mentioned story more than once now. You're right. It's the stories that people can relate to, but that also ultimately help us to relate that innovation to any changes that we might have to make or adapt as well. Um, what can we do more to, to help some of those underrepresented populations uh, be aware of what's out there? So I think... Uh, y'all probably know a little better than, than me. Um, and I say y'all due to my almost decade in Texas. Um, it's, it's exposure at an early age and then doing events with companies to allow kids to come in and see what the job looked like, see the best parts of the job. Um, and, you know, parents supporting their children, if they show an interest in something, gathering materials, there's all kinds of stuff that you can get online that uh, doesn't really cost much to keep the kids interested. If they show that spark, keep the spark alive. And I think that parents, teachers, and then also the professional arena has a responsibility to do that, to keep that spark alive all the way out through um, the, you know, a kid's education. 
I think that's an important point that oftentimes some of the organizations, I think even the ones that we tried to work with, um, at first assume that you have to wait until they're like juniors or seniors in high school because it's right before college, but they're missing such a huge opportunity to really reach out to kids when they're actually so motivated still in learning. As they get older, sometimes other interests, things like that, but they're so interested in middle school and they really are um, open to that. It's been a difficult thing, Kevin, right? For you, you call it ageism, reverse ageism or something like that. They kind of don't like- Yes, we can't, we, we struggle because we have super excited 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds and you're just not gonna get them into an industrial facility or- a lab because of the legal liabilities. Mm -hmm. That's the hard, really hard. Well, I think when she us. did it with Sikorsky, that was one of the first ones that we actually brought. No, I, I'm talking about internships. Too. No, I, well, I mean, yes. just in general too, like oh, even yes. opening up and doing, yes. like they're doing an, some kind of organized yeah. day I, for, for kids. Right. And, and I want to piggyback on something you said about um, for people to stay in STEM, young people, they, they need, um, opportunities to compete or to learn progressively, you know, and aside from mentors or role models, they need something authentic, right? There's no amount of coloring sheets that I could give a student to color a helicopter that would replace walking into a hangar yeah. and putting their hand on one or sitting in a seat or talking to you about your recent flight test. That is real and authentic. And that I feel like is where education misses the mark a lot of times for sure not only the educators though i think she's right about the organizations too i wish we could do more to engage right. those organizations to do more about these like even if it's a one-day event something like that sure i i want to pivot just a little topically if i could uh only for sake of time so now you know helicopters aren't just for earth right we've seen this ingenuity which is a fantastic tiny little vehicle that's was only supposed to maybe fly once and now they've done 50 plus flights. What do you see? Uh, well, first of all, do you think Sikorsky will get into the space? Uh, you know, a, a UUV, I'm sorry, a, a UAV, a rotary UAV on a, another planet. Do you think that's in the works? Secondly, uh, anything you would like to share about the utility of helicopters in, uh, on earth or off of earth? And maybe where do you see helicopters going in the near future? So three-part question. So I think that yes. um, I, I honestly am not sure if Sikorsky will get into, um, you know, the helicopter business on other planets, though I would not rule it out. It's, it's a natural progression for the industry. You know, a lot of the industry is going toward... Um, the uh, unpiloted vehicles, uh, and that's a natural step toward, you know, other areas. So I wouldn't necessarily rule it out. Um, now, I do know that you had Dr. Bernhard on your podcast before, and he's given you the, the famous Igor Sikorsky quote about what helicopters are good for um, with search and rescue. Uh, so, so honestly, Yes, helicopters are not going to ever be the fastest vehicle, uh, despite what Airwolf may have, you know, portrayed. Um, they're not necessarily going to be um, the most comfortable vehicle. 
Uh, though we do try when it's, you know, especially a VIP customer to make it comfortable, but they can get in and out of places that an airplane cannot get in and out of. They can, they're very durable. Um, and we talked about the Blackhawk earlier, that, that machine's incredible and it saved many, many lives over its, you know, decades of, of, uh, of service. So the utility of a helicopter is to get into places that are you know, fairly hostile, whether it's, you know, uh, up on the top of a mountain or in a, you know, people on top of their house with a, with a flood, or if it's, you know, in a war zone, it's, it's a very useful machine for that. Um, and I think the future of helicopters is going to be with more speed, more maneuverability, but its core mission is always going to be um, search and rescue. That is what it is. What is unique right. about that? Uh, I mean, machine. that I think about the Coast Guard, right? The Coast Guard's reliance on helicopters. You really don't see boats pulling people out of the water. I think of always think of the Coast Guard helicopters that pull people out of the water. Um, I also think on the battlefield, eventually it'll be an un, probably an uncrewed helicopter and something like those um, Boston Dynamics, you know, the, the, the super anthropomorphized, you know, robots. I see a, a, a battlefield where we can extract people without endangering other lives. So that's, that, I know war is bad, but if we can kill less people, that or would fewer. be, that would, uh, yeah, fewer people. If less people die, how about fewer people die? We're gonna and that's my role. That's the English we're, we're, side. We're gonna you can count it, it's fewer. Yes, we're, we're going to edit that out. Yes, fewer. <laughs> um, but I, I do appreciate that uh, you're, you're bringing us back to the core mission, which is um, search and rescue on Earth and going places we couldn't otherwise go anywhere else that we might use one. So. Well, before we do go, I always like to wrap up with some, you know, the, the advice is always very similar, I find, with people. But at the same time, it's so important, I think, to remind our listeners that there are opportunities out there. So for our listeners who might be thinking about something in this career field or might be studying cards somewhere related going, I'm, I'm odd, what advice do you have for them? So I have, I think, two main pieces of advice for, you know, folks who are interested or maybe don't quite know what the path is yet. Um, and that's to, you know, have a general idea of the goal, foster your interest, and then work toward that goal, but don't be deterred by the setbacks and don't even necessarily think of them as setbacks. So we didn't talk about it, but I took, it took me 10 years to get hired with in at Sikorsky as a flight test engineer, which was my dream job. I worked in very cool areas along the way. Um, and had I just kind of discarded those and been discouraged that I was not being hired, I would have missed out on some pretty core learning experiences in life. So yes, have a goal, set your sights on that, but take in all of the experiences along the way when you're working toward your goal. And then my, my main piece of advice for every human, I think, is to, um, to know yourself, 
to understand what drives you, to figure out what your values are, how you measure all of your decisions, um, bounce them against what your core values and purpose in, in the world is. That's a, that's a hefty thing to do and it takes a long time, but you will benefit greatly if you really understand what drives you as a person. Great way to end. Rachel, thanks so much for spending your time with us today. And we look forward, I hope to seeing you again with some students. Yes, I would, that would be great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I was so glad to see Rachel again. I'm, you know, I'm always um, impressed with with women, I think in general in this field, but it just sounds like she's known what she's wanted to do for so long. And I could just see a little Rachel there kind of studying her cards. That was such well, a great image. Um, yeah, she is a ridiculously competent engineer doing a very cool job. Sikorsky is, you know, one of the premier uh, aviation aerospace kind of manufacturers. And she is, um, you know, she has arrived. I like the fact that she said, don't be deterred, don't be deterred mm -hmm. and to don't let setbacks prevent you from, you know, just, yeah. she really had a good message of perseverance. Mm -hmm. Or the idea that it took her 10 years, right. right? That seems like a really long time, but like most of us, as we look back in our career, we can see that, you know, we, sometimes we stay in the same place because we think that's what we have to do. Instead, it might take you a while at different places that you're gathering that information that then leads to that thing. So I, I, I think it was, that's a great uh, point with her i always remember too how uh what a great role model she was for the the young girls that we brought there i think they were in fifth grade at the time fifth and sixth maybe they were very young and uh she, i remember thinking that you know that was when i first started making the connection that there probably aren't a lot of people like her who are willing to take the time to talk to yes. such young kids i i always um i believe we owe you know we owe proper respect to the professionals that are willing yeah. to give back to the younger kids. So I, I, I think the world over. So, well, we hope that you enjoyed her as much as we did. Um, we hope to, of course, keep working with her and we'll have someone new next week that we hope to share their story as well. And of course we'll say, let's, let's go, go to space. space.